This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, December 20th at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. If you turn there, and we're going to begin in verse uh, 24. We've spent the last few weeks studying the first five days of creation recorded in uh, Genesis 1. And so we're going to spend uh, the next several weeks, actually, into Genesis 2 on the sixth day of creation. Uh, The sixth day is perhaps the most important day recorded in Genesis 1 because it records the pinnacle of God's creation. After God creates uh, a world with atmosphere and and is organized with land and and sea and covered with trees and plants and governed by uh, planets, moon, stars, and then fills it with birds and fish and insects and all kinds of living creatures... God does something different on the second half of the sixth day. And that's where we're going to spend our time. Verse 24 is where it begins, and I'll read uh, just to the first verse of chapter 2. It says this, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant, yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. This is God's word. Today is going to be an interesting sermon. I'm going to try to give you a picture of the way the world um, was designed to be and what we see today and what the problem is and what the solution is. The world is dying. Pleasures are fading and people are hurting. Everyone, believe it or not, knows that everything is broken because if you live long enough, Everything fades away, and eventually death comes to us all. And we all sit and go, it's not the way it seems like it's supposed to be. Few understand why the world is broken, even if they know and see and experience that it is, and even fewer understand how it's fixed. The Bible not only explains the problem here in Genesis 1 through 3, it also points us to the solution, which is hinted in Genesis 3, Namely this, faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ to remake everything good again is the one and only solution we have. 
Now, our world provides a lot of other solutions because they don't understand the problem. And they want to resolve and fix the brokenness that they, too, can't ignore. Some believe it's more education. Some believe it's more freedoms. Some believe it's just more acceptance or tolerance. The world will tell us that all of our pains come from bad parents, bad pressures, bad parameters. We're told that traditions need to be rejected, that all boundaries need to be tested, and that every definition needs to be revised every year or generation. We are told by the world that one's desires are the supreme authority in all life, even at a young age. Follow your heart. That the individual is free and encouraged to determine their own identity and to define their own sexuality and even their own sanctity in life, even if that means taking away the life of another. We're told to live for today and that our decisions today have no real meaningful consequences for tomorrow and certainly not for eternity. These are all lies. And sadly, many Christians are believing them because they have chosen to love the world more than they love the Word. Really simple. Our world tells us that we need something new. Even Christians will say, we need something new. When I would say that the Word of God tells us we need to remember something quite old. And it's what I'm talking about today. Namely, the image of God. We're going to see that the image of God and a misunderstanding or just our complete dismissal of it is reason for many of the major issues that we have today that are dividing the church and that are um, issues in the world. Man was made to relate to God. Man was made to reveal God. And man was made to represent God. And denying all three of those things has us in the situation that we're in. So I'd like to go through each of those, starting with the idea that man was created to relate to God, talking about this idea of the image of God. We see in verse 26 that God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. We've shifted in the third person kind of perspective, and now God's describing and saying something. There's a narrative going on. It says, let us make man. The creation of man is supposed to be distinguished from all of creation for the first five and a half days. Different than the creation of the living creatures even on that fifth, I'm sorry, sixth day. Previously, he had said many times, let there be, or let the waters bring forth, or let the air swarm with certain things. But the creation of man appears to involve a conversation within a community before the creation actually occurs. It's strange if you read it, but it is intended at the very base level to distinguish the creation of everything else and the creation of man. There's something different going on. And the question that is begged is, who are, A-R-E, the hour? Who's the hour we're talking about or 
Better yet, who's the hour that is talking? While there is some theological debate over this verse among probably men who read and think too much and play too little, it is important, and I understand this verse to be the beginning of God's revelation of his plurality and unity, of what we know in the Christian and Orthodox historic church as the Trinity. We believe our God to be triune, which is a difficult concept to understand, but not a difficult one to explain. There is basically one God who eternally exists in three persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of these persons are fully God. They are undivided, and they are possessing every attribute of God, and yet they are distinct from one another, existing in what can be described as a perfect, covenant, loving relationship with one another. And that truth that is much more robust than I have time to explain here, but that truth that God is perfect and he is personal by nature gives us a lot of insight into why God created or perhaps why he didn't need to create. God didn't need to create people in order to enjoy relationship. God didn't need to create people so that he had someone to love, though I think he does love. His capacity to love and capacity to relate and the very nature of personality existed before any person, namely humans, existed. And so by God saying, let us make man in our image, the nature of God himself, of our creator, gives insight into our creation. Just as God is personal, so man is, is made the same way with personality, we'll call it. Personality includes intellect and emotion and will. See, we're not the top of the food chain simply because we are bigger and faster, stronger, smarter. We are the top of the chain, if you will, because we are the pinnacle of God's creation. And somehow, even if we don't fully understand it, men and women, humanity, possesses the likeness of God in a way that the rest of creation does not. God made us like Him. And though similar in many ways to the animals, we were made by the same Creator, we are intrinsically different. <clears throat> Where animals are smart, men are self-conscious. Where animals can seem to express emotion in certain circumstances, men can express emotions and share emotions and, and even hope emotionally about the afterlife. Where animals are governed by instinct, men can freely choose to obey or disobey and even consider the consequences of that choice. Unlike animals, we share some of God's attributes. We can pursue holiness, the Bible says. We can uphold justice. We can show mercy. We can experience grace. We can appreciate beauty. 
And we could go on and on about the differences. And many would argue, well, I've seen a dog cry or whatever. And you'd miss the point. Being made in the image of God is not primarily related to the natural. Being made in the image of God is really about the spiritual capacity that human has. Without doubt, man was made with uh, personality as a, a personal entity who could relate to others. But more importantly, man was made as a spiritual entity with the capacity for communion with God. God made men able to communicate with Him. God made men able to enjoy Him. God made men and women able to worship Him. What is important to remember is that this is true for every human. Not to say that they do enjoy and worship and communicate with Him, but that they possess the capacity to do so. It is not the redeemed only who are made in the image of God. It is all people, which should impact the way we view all people. Everyone possesses what is called the Imago Dei, the image of God. And though it is very perverted in terms of being a perfect reflection, it is there. And Genesis teaches us, therefore, that all human life is sacred because of that fact. And regardless of how a new life is conceived and comes into this world, or regardless of an old life and how it is going out of this world, life comes from God. We were built with a capacity to commune with God. We were built and made to relate to God. And we relate poorly with Him. We'll get to that. Just talking about how God designed the world, He was created and designed us to reveal God. We talked this phrase of likeness of God, not just image of God, but likeness of God. We must continue to remind ourselves that, that we are not our own that our purpose in life is to be in submission to God's purposes for all creation, which is to reveal something about God. We're included in that. Verse 27 is a, is a powerful verse. This one verse is um, foundational to addressing some of the major issues in our world today. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Interesting language used through there. It says, let us make man in our likeness. And then it qualifies that likeness by stating that this image has certain characteristics. It's important to remember that the fact that it says image and likeness is God's way of declaring that we are not the expressed image of God. We are the expressed likeness of God. In other words, our Creator intends to distinguish Himself from the creation. And while God has chosen to share many of His attributes with us, some I've described, there are 
many other attributes which God does not share with us. God is eternal. We are created and mortal. God is present everywhere. We are present somewhere, sometimes. God is all-knowing, past, present, and future, all at the same moment. We have trouble remembering anything in the past, learning some stuff in the moment, and we can imagine what the future might be like. God is all-powerful. He is not limited in any way, and yet we are incredibly limited in our power. God's character and nature is unchanging. Ours is not. God is self-existent. He doesn't depend on anything outside himself. We are incredibly dependent upon him for everything. God is sovereign over all things and we rule over a small little portion of what God has deemed right in his eyes to give us. We're not God. And as we read stuff like made in his image, we need to remember that we are like God, but God is not like us. But then he says something that's intriguing. Let us make them male and female. That this image of God that he created him in, Adam being humanity, he created in plurality. The same idea of plurality and unity. He qualifies the word likeness by saying that that one image of God is seen in the unified expression of both men and women. And we need a verse like this to establish a very important bedrock truth that men and women were created equal in their value. We don't need a verse like this to know that men and women were created very different. All you need to know is a man or a woman, if you're a man and woman, or a marriage makes it even that much more clear that we're different. But we do need a verse to say we're equal. All we need is a little bit of life to show that we are different. Men and women think different. Men and women feel different. Men and women act different. Men and women are different to the glory of God. But as you see that men and women were made in the image of God collectively, we see that the uniqueness of men. Now try to think of the positive things, right? So like, oh man or woman, like the uniqueness of men gives us insight into what God is like in a way that is different than what the uniqueness of women give us insight into God. They both give us insight into what God is like. And if you only look at one or only the other, you miss in many ways understanding and learning who God and what God is like, what this image of God means. All of creation was made to glorify God, and mankind was the pinnacle of that moment, male and female together. And these differences in men and women are supposed to give us more reason to honor and glorify our Lord, but sadly, they've given a lot of reason for us to dishonor Him. 
historically, this has been an incredible uh, conflict in the church and outside the church. And instead of, of looking at these beautiful pictures, if you will, that is really of one picture of our Lord in many ways, they become antagonistic ways to attack each other and diminish one another and really dishonor the glory of God. But where we are in our culture today, the equality of men and women, although still somewhat of a conflict, is not the biggest questions being asked today. Today, that has been somewhat replaced by the redefinition of what a man is and what a woman is. The redefining of, of maleness and femaleness of gender is not something courageous to be applauded. It's something very rebellious to be grieved. And as we look back to Genesis 1, this is where we begin that conversation. See, God's designs are supreme over our desires. And it does not diminish the reality of those desires. Desires are real, but that doesn't make them right. And on the most simplest level, as you look at, you know, if you parent children, you know that very clearly. There's all kinds of desires that our children have that are very real, that doesn't make them right. And as adults, it's no different. But when you have a culture that basically elevates the desires of the human heart that the Bible says is desperately sick, then you can see how you get to a place where people say, hey, if it's what I want, it must be right. This is the way I was made. God decides what is good. And he doesn't often, if ever, ask our opinion about it. He doesn't ask us how we feel about it. In fact, we serve a God who commands us to feel. And when we don't feel those things, it is, I believe, impudent for us to ask him for help. These verses reveal basically that sexuality and gender are not manufactured constructs thrust upon people by parents or society. They are the very designs of God from the beginning meant to reflect the very character of God. And that's so important. Because when he basically lays out sexuality and gender as part of the image of God, any attempt, desire, or whatever to redefine those things has very little, if nothing, to do with rights and everything to do with trying to redefine God himself. Attempts to reject God's designs and his creation are not ever intellectually, emotionally, or physically progressive. They are spiritually regressive. It's important to remember that. Before we get into the shatteredness, <clears throat> the last part, <clears throat> we're created to relate to God. We were created to reveal God. We are also created to represent him. After blessing Adam, which again is the word for all of humanity, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. He tells Adam 
and we later learn his bride's name, Eve, to be fruitful and fill the earth. Men and women are told to be fruitful and multiply. And our first parents were supposed to do two things, make babies and build culture. Made in the image of God meant that in many ways they were given the power to create. Just as God is a creator, we have the capacity to create. First, we literally reproduce ourselves. But unlike the animals, it's important to remember that when we bring children, and I say we, when God brings children into the world through us, we don't just bring physical beings into the world. We bring beings with a spiritual capacity to commune with God. From the womb, this is true. And that means that the act of raising families is not merely about just multiplying kids. Through the raising of our families, like this was connected with this cultural mandate, we were to fill the earth, not just with people, but with God-glorifying people that would create God-glorifying culture, culture that is diverse, culture that is beautiful, culture that looks in many ways like we have now, yet without sin, which is almost impossible to imagine. We imitate God as his image bears, in that we create, as he did, and what is created is supposed to make much of the creator, including our children and anything we do in our lives. But he also commands us to do more than just fill the earth with people. He instructs us to have dominion over the earth. Mankind has something to do as these families that are being built, something to do together. We are given personality. We are given identity, as in we are creatures, dependent and accountable to the Creator, but we're also given responsibility. We're not called to rule, though I'm sure some of your translations may say that. As much as we're called to represent and have dominion, in other words, we are servants under a ruler, stewards with an assignment. Some of the biggest um, problem we have in our culture is we think more like owners than we do stewards. We really believe that everything we have, our time, our talent, our treasure, our homes, our job, whatever, we really think it's ours. And it's not. We are stewarding what God has given us or ought to be. We are God's representatives. And though we have greater value than the rest of the created world, we also have greater responsibility to the rest of the world. We are not only called to cultivate the garden that was planted originally as Adam and Eve were in, we were, as we see through our first parents, called to plant other gardens and to make that which had not been cultivated like that to look just like what God had made. 
He gave them the pattern. This is what you build. Make it glorious. As the owner, we see at the end, God said he blessed them, and he says, behold. So he's like, have dominion. Make babies. Build culture. Grow families for my glory. And he says, behold, I have given you, and he lays all these things out. What does that mean? Well, he promised to provide everything needed to accomplish what he told him to do. He says, look, I've given you the power to create. I've given you the materials to create with. I've given you the assurance that everything you create will be protected and provided for by me. And I'm giving you permission to enjoy what is created to his glory. Men had a responsibility. And so as you just step back and go, okay, that first part, we're just looking at what what God said before sin. This is what God was created man to relate to him, and they were to reveal him, and they were to represent him in this world, and then something went wrong. Prior to Genesis chapter 3, we know that creation when it was made and when it functioned and when it was enjoyed according to God's design, God himself says, this is not just good, this is very good. This is very beautiful. This is very glorious. But we look around our world today and we go, this is not very good. Things are messed up. Having been formed in the image of God, Men were designed to reflect God's greatness, but men were more concerned with their own. And in Genesis 3, we read that men rebelled, which at the core is this, I'll be happier apart from you, God. That's the lie they believed. That your word is not trustworthy, that your word is not good, that your word is not glorious but I will be happier and more satisfied apart from your word. And what happened when men did that? The image of God was shattered. So Genesis 1 and 2, we're walking around like mirrors and beauty and the beast, right? Reflecting God everywhere. God, God, God. Slam, shattered. We're walking around as shattered mirrors in Genesis chapter 3 where you can still see glimpses of God. The image is totally perverted and messed up and eyes are all weird and like, right? But you can still see and That's what you see in the world today. Men have the capacity to create that is from God and yet they create some horrible things. And they create some wonderful things. Men have... are given a tongue to bless, and yet we see that they don't use it to bless, they use it to tear down. That image of all these things that men do is this marred, shattered picture of God that he does want to restore. Though the image is recognizable right now, it reflects a deformed likeness of God. And it shouldn't surprise us because Romans 1 tells us that although Men knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Right? Image, 
You could have the image of God. Now I'm going to go make gods out of all kinds of things in creation. And so what happened? Well, they denied all three of those things. They denied that they were made in the image of God. And what does that look like today? Well, it looks like the rejection of God in relationship with him. Mankind began to view themselves and others as animals. Desires became, those are natural. Decisions, well, those are rather unavoidable because I am who I am. Life was no longer meaningful beyond achieving happiness as defined by my desires. And usually that came through freedom because, you know, nothing glorious can come from restraint or limits. All definitions of bad were changed with every generation and continue to be and all responsibility for bad behavior shifted to externals. You're to blame. You're to blame. This is to blame. And it ain't something in here. Men were no longer accountable to anyone but themselves. And soon things and concepts like survival of the fittest replaced sanctity of all human life, and the strong began to prey on the weak as men declared their full-on independence from God. They basically said, I don't need you, God. Denying that they were more than animals that were designed to commune with God, they, like beasts, exploited the unimportant. Anyone that they didn't deem valuable, they rejected the unwanted, and then it climaxed in the murder of the unborn. As our culture celebrates or I should say, grieves over the death of lions that they've named. They deny the image of God, the specialness, the uniqueness of humans. Why is there poverty in the world? Because people don't share their wealth. Why is there people hurting? Because people are not loving. They don't view one another through the filter of the image of God. Then men denied that they were made in the likeness of God. And that's been the one on the forefront of all the papers and magazines and news reports. They redefine God's design. This is sadly the most celebrated one in our world today. That's such a division. It's divided in the church, it's divided in the world. And it shouldn't surprise us, again, because Romans 1 tells us that though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, and they'll practice such things as a whole list of things. But they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. The deformation of God's design, especially with sexuality, began many, 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 many years ago. The difference, I think, in our culture today is that what was once considered at least unnatural is now institutionalized as normal. Sexual relationships, according to God's design, between a man and woman in a covenant marriage have been replaced with a smorgasbord of sexual immorality. And it's not just something like homosexuality. That's, um, 
dare I say, the tip of the iceberg. As I began to explore, like, hey, what, what are the categories now? It wasn't just homosexuality or bisexuality, but pansexuality, polysexuality, scoliosexuality. I mean, the list went on. I was like, I don't even know what half those things are. Neither do you. But others do. And can we not see that God had a design in the perpetual deformation as the generations go, getting further and further away from what God designed the world to be? The sexual revolution, which is more recent in our history, was very successful in that it resulted in a complete rejection of God's distinctions between a man and a woman, so much so that a man now is identified as a woman of the year in all kinds of different publications and celebrated to the extent where even non-believers are going, what? What? Are you serious? Because as much as men and women want to deny God's truth, they know it. And it does come a point when it goes so far that even a non-believer goes, that's too far. And I believe we're getting close, if not already there. But again, what's going on in the heart? And I want us to understand because it makes the cross that much more powerful specifically how it changes a man's heart and not just his behavior. As the voices of the world call us to go, look, if you don't like who you are, be who you want. Now, there was a time and a place where that meant like, I don't want to be an engineer. I want to be a teacher, right? That was the limit of like, be who you want. Be all you can be, right? That was a military slogan. That's... Totally different meaning today. When we say be who you want, that is, I can be man, I can be woman, pick your ethnicity, whatever. I'm not sure I'm human anymore. We're getting there. You have that bleeding into, obviously, marriages, homosexual marriages. The news report of two men that were married in Canada are now getting a divorce so they can marry a third guy. That's not legal yet. Or the report of a 12-year-old boy who decided he wanted to be a girl and for his 13th birthday, his mom gave him hormone treatments. And we sit back and go, what? What is going on? It's back to the image of God. The world says if you don't like who you are, be who you want. You know what their hearts are saying? God, we don't like who you are. So we want you to be who we want. And men begin to remake God into their own image and their own likeness. That's the problem. And it ends with not just denying that they are to relate to God or that they are to reveal him, but that they are to represent him. They reject God's rule and their role as representatives. And instead of stewarding creation and ruling as servants, we rule like sinful kings. Instead of building a God-glorifying kingdom, we build our own little kingdoms. How do I know this? I think it's um, 
most evident by uh, the prevalent growth of storage lockers across our state. What I mean by that, instead of using our stuff to serve God, we store our stuff away. Stuff that we don't even know we have. Collecting more and more stuff for our own glory and joy. Instead of using our time and talent and treasure to bring order, we usually use it to make things more chaotic. Instead of filling our homes with godly children, we fill them with all kinds of cats and dogs and put clothes on them and name them all kinds of weird things. Now, if you have cats and dogs with clothes, I still think it's weird, but I'm not condemning you. <laughs> Contrasting here. The state of Washington is notorious for that. There are more pets being brought into homes than children. Instead of building godly families, we change the definition of family and say it's godly. Essentially, instead of stewarding creation that God has given, we either abuse it or we worship it. We don't see ourselves as vice regents under a more powerful ruler whose stuff that we are managing. We instead see ourselves as master of our own domains and we are devoted to bringing whatever we can into submission to serve our own desires. That's the shattered image of God in the culture we live in. And the reason why we have to preach through Genesis 1 because there's some bedrock truths that are foundational to understanding who we are in God. We have an image problem. And I don't mean that in the superficial sense. I mean that in the deep heart sense. But Jesus. Because the big question is, how, are we gonna f how do you fix all that? And we wrongly attack it, if you will, or address it from a superficial behavioral place. The problem is the heart. And there's only one person who can change that. It's not you or I. By grace, through trusting in the work and person of Jesus Christ, men and women are restored to who God created us to be. Now, it's important to understand this because we can easily cheapen grace. Our restoration required much work, much sacrifice, just not ours. It required the work of Jesus Christ. It required our Creator in whose likeness we were made, being made in the likeness of men so that he could enter into this dark world and redeem it and bring what was good and had become bad back to goodness again. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And I believe some translations say, the expressed image of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
You see, Jesus, being made in the likeness of men, entered into the world as the expressed image of God. Not just his likeness. Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God. He is not just like God. He is God. When you see Jesus, you see God. Jesus is not just God-like. God is Christ-like. He is totally different than us and yet made like us so he could represent us. Like Adam, that's us, all of us, were created in the image of God and like Adam, all of us failed to acknowledge God, to thank God, to glorify God. But where Adam failed, or the Bible says, where the first Adam failed, the last Adam, Jesus, succeeded. Jesus lived the life that Adam was supposed to by perfectly relating to God, by perfectly revealing God, by perfectly representing God. And when we confess our total failure, here's the entry to Christianity, ready? Admit you're a failure. Admit that, like, I have no good in me. Even my good is bad. We admit our failure and we surrender and we trust in what Jesus has done in our place. And the image of God that he perfectly represented goes, I don't know if it makes that sound. It'd be cool if it did. And we, covered by the blood of Jesus, stand before our Lord, holy and blameless, as Jesus did, blessed with him. And right now, yes, well, maybe you don't. I still sin. But God sees me as he sees Jesus. And slowly over time, guess what? Jesus is peeking out. It's like, Bee! there he is. And that reflection is becoming and looking more and more like Jesus in my flesh. Now, it will never look perfect in this life. But it will be perfected one day when it's fully restored. But right now, guess how God sees me? Restored. You don't see me as restored, but I look good in Jesus' eyes, I'll tell you what. <laughs> and someday, we will look like that with one another. But we don't just live in Christ now, and this is important, because I think all too often, we sit looking at the reflection of Jesus in the mirror like, yeah, awesome! And we never walk away from the mirror. See, he knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Jesus said, I am the way, not just the truth and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're not only to be hearers of the gospel, but doers as well. And the more we behold the riches of God's grace in Christ, I believe the more our hearts begin to be aligned with him and the more our hands begin to live out who we are. But this is a work of the Spirit, and I believe that this work of the Spirit happens in community. I give you lots of verses about what God is doing to build his people, to grow his people. Remember, 
The likeness of God, right, was displayed through men and women, unified. And we think, well, through marriage then? Well, what about those who are not married? Am I only getting half of the image of God reflecting here? Great question. I believe the fullness of Christ's likeness is displayed through the church. The people of God. What? Jesus is the head and we're the body. And as that figurative person, with Jesus the head and us the body, together we collectively reflect the glory of God. So that I cannot by myself understand who God is or even make him known without you. And you cannot without me. We don't view the church that way. We view the church as this extra thing when we get together and go, I'm actually needed for us to complete a picture. I need your weirdness. You need my weirdness. Our uniqueness, my uniqueness. And together, the body of Christ, right? The expressed image of God is reflected through his church. And as the church, as the people of God, we represent him to the world. Through living as the church. What did Jesus say? Man, guys, you'll know you're my disciples by how much you memorize the Bible. You'll know you're my disciples by doing it. He says, you'll know. They will, they will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. And as we love one another, guess what the world goes? Dang! Those people love one another. And the Bible says that the church is the expressed wisdom of God. Living as the church, we fulfill, I believe, God's garden mandate to build God-glorifying culture. And though God has chosen the times and the places in which we live, this world is not our home. We are aliens in a foreign land, citizens of another kingdom, journeying our way to God's kingdom, and encouraging others to love Jesus and journey with us as we make that kingdom known. And as we walk through these days of our lives, we live in a way that is distinctively different from people who do not know the love of God as our evidence of what God has done in our lives. We don't do good works, we don't love one another to earn our salvation, but we show the great power of grace we have received through those works. That is how we live counterculturally. And it doesn't mean that we don't open our mouths and declare God's truth. It doesn't mean we don't draw lines which might bring division in our families and with our friends. But it does mean primarily we swim against the stream by how we live with and for one another. We swim against the stream, if you will, of the world, showing the wisdom of God and the folly of other wisdom by how we live as the church. So countercultural living among God's people as the church must be done in humility and out of love for God, but it's also out of love for our neighbors with the goal that those who do not know God will see his work in our lives and therefore thirst for him. I don't think it does us good to make every argument 
and pick every fight about how God's designs have been rejected. That certainly has happened. And there are times for us to be the salt of the, of the earth and the light of the earth and to go, hey, this is God's truth. But I believe we are most countercultural when we ourselves live out God's truths with one another and through that begin to affect change. We are restored. We keep going back to this, to restore. We are not just restored in Christ to sit and celebrate everything we have, though we do that. Through that celebration, it moves us to go into the world out of love to share that truth and to reveal to them what is really broken is this in here. And the externals are just a sign of that. And when we come together on Sunday, we're reminded about that. We don't come to this table and you sign up like, well, here's all the things I have to do this week to make sure I'm good. You come to the table reminding of the life you have in Jesus. And that even if you fell short again, which I'm likely you did, you come and Jesus is saying, oh, I knew that. You're renewed again. Don't forget. And that this is a shared life. So this is your confession of your conviction in these truths. Not that just the world is broken and screwed up. Everyone knows that. But your confession of the one thing that fixes it, which is Jesus. Believe that yourself and then tell someone else for crying out loud. Isn't that our greatest hope for them, that they would know that? That they would know the love of Jesus? But we hide away as if we have the solution for them and we're afraid to tell them. Don't be fearful. Live boldly. Live courageously. Let's pray.